Today we're going to study uh, Matthew chapter 3 verses 1 to 12. And this story is basically the start of Jesus' kingdom. And actually, without seeing Jesus, the first person we actually see is a guy named John the Baptist. And so we're going to unpack John the Baptist and his ministry. And then what we're going to start to do is, as we go through Matthew, we're going to start to see the themes of kingdom and king that Matthew is really intentionally trying to show us. And then we'll go back and see Jesus' birth. And I think it might actually amplify... Jesus' kingness, for lack of his, his regalness, for lack of better words. And so, yeah. So you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. And uh, we're going to study that. So question for you. Do you guys, uh, there's a picture of a, of a, of a funny looking guy. What's this? Do you guys know what this is? And good socks? So in the olden days, whenever a king or some sort of regal person, maybe a queen, would be going into a new town, because they didn't have the technology to say, hey, the king's coming, get ready, they would send a guy named a herald. Not Harold. I don't maybe there was a herald named Harold at some point. But the role of this guy, he he was a herald and, and his job, like I said, was to go ahead and he would announce the arrival of the king. And he'd say, hey guys, the king is coming, get ready, clean up the town, pick up all the garbage, get the roads right, fill these potholes, paint the lines, do what you gotta do because the king is coming, you have a couple of months, get your stuff together so when he gets here, he will see that the taxes that he's collecting are worth it. <laughs> get ready. And so as we study Matthew, Matthew chapter three, and we see John the Baptist, he had a similar role. He was the promised messenger for the coming King Jesus that who would be coming into the world. So this is not what he looked like. He, he was way worse dressed. Um, Matthew calls John the Baptist by a simple name. He calls him a voice calling out in the wilderness. A voice calling out in the wilderness. And... It's interesting because you can read John and say, this seems like such a sore thumb in such an awesome story. Like, who is this guy? Why is he so poorly dressed? What's the deal with him? And so I started to unpack and look through the Bible to see John the Baptist, and I actually discovered that there was way more to him. John the Baptist wasn't just a messenger. He was a messenger who God had planned to send from, for a long time. And so let's, let's look at a couple of passages. The first one is from Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 to 6, and it says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so the first thing we see is before the great and awesome day that the Lord comes, we and the Jews at the time would have been expecting Elijah to come back. Elijah had lived already. And so what, we're, what they're looking for in this, in this prophecy is the second Elijah. And so let's go to Luke chapter 1, verses 13 to 17. I'm just going to read you a part of it. Because it's cool what happens here. Look how, look how God works here. He says, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. And that's John's dad. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And check this out. 
and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the, of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Doesn't that sound almost exactly the same? And so if we look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, which is, if you know about the story of Elijah, just like Elijah, he went off into the wilderness. And if we go to 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, check this out. It says, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Now, compare that to Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, and it says, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Isn't that cool? He was basically wearing the same costume or uniform as, John the ba as Elijah. And so I, I just started digging into this, and I was like, this is, this is so cool, because this is, as you're going to see throughout the book of Matthew, that God is not just reacting to us and isn't just doing stuff in ministry. He isn't winging it. He isn't saying like, oh, okay, well, okay, what do I got to do now? Uh, maybe I'll send this guy John and see what happens. Maybe uh, he'll have some sort of, maybe they'll listen to him. What we see throughout the Gospels is that every single thing that God does, whether it's who he sends, what they wear, when they come, what day, what festival they arrive on, their name, every single thing about them is completely planned to perfection. Every single detail. And so we see that Zechariah, John's dad, he, he got this message from, from the angel. And for John's life, he knew that he was sent in this world to, in one side, follow in the footsteps of all these awesome prophets who came before him. And on the other side, he would have the privilege of meeting and even getting to baptize the last prophet, Jesus. And next week, Mike will open up more about baptism. You're going to see, uh, I actually am not going to talk about baptism at all because I think it's such a big topic. And so today we're going to, he said this thing in Luke 1, it says, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To make ready for the Lord a people prepared. We're going to kind of unpack what that looks like in John's ministry and his message. So let's, let's open Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to read it. And then we're going to unpack three really big values of Jesus' kingdom that I think are really useful for us today. Let's stand. Let's do that. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. You don't have to join in. Just uh, read along with me in your mind. Verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able to, is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Let's pray. You can sit, actually. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Matthew chapter 3. We thank you for John the Baptist. And we thank you, God, that um, even if we see here in the story that the people react as though they never heard that message before of repentance, God, that we would see in your scriptures that that's actually what you've been saying from day one. And that's what you're saying to us today as well. Father, I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts, that your spirit would teach us and show us what you want us to learn, and that we would be filled with conviction, but also hope and just this amazing, amazing feeling that you love us and that you're with us, God, and that you have made a way for us to be in relationship with you. In your name we pray, amen. Jordan, I, um, I took some of the slides out, so you'll have to uh, listen. You, can't, you wouldn't be able to just go to the next slide, so, yeah. All right, so the first, let's see, let's go back to that other one. Um, three kingdom values that I think you can see here in, in the book of John. And uh, you guys have heard me preach before, so some of you have heard me preach before. These are not new things, but, um, they're things that we need to be hearing again and again, right? And so the first kingdom value is repentance. The second one is anticipation. And the third one is bearing fruit. And uh, I'm just going to go through those one at a time and unpack them and see what God's word has for us today. So the first one is repentance. And that's based on verses 1 to 2. And it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so like I said before, if, if John's ministry was to prepare the people for Jesus' coming, then the method he was using was by preaching a really simple and straightforward message, which is to repent. One word. A lot of pack. A lot of power. It's important for us as Jesus' subjects to understand this. You know, because repentance can sometimes seem like white noise, right? Or maybe we sometimes go to churches and you never hear it. But repentance, repentance is so essential to his kingdom because it is the thing that shows that clear division between who the king is and who his subjects are. As his subjects, we submit to him in humility as our act of worship. And I really believe that if, if you can imagine those pearly gates, if you've heard of the pearly gates, I don't know if they're actually made out of pearls or whatever, but if there was a key to get into those, into those gates, the key is repentance. That is the entryway into the kingdom. But is that a new thing? Like, it's not new that you know you've heard it from me, but is that 
for, for the Jews at the time, would that have been a new thing that they w would have heard at the time? I don't think so, because basically every prophet that's ever come before John basically had the same message. Let's look at two of them. We'll look at Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 6. If you have a fill in the blank, you can, I think this is one of them. This is the prophet Ezekiel to Israel. He says, this is God saying to him, Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. So Ezekiel said it. What about Jeremiah? In chapter 35, verse 15, it says, Again and again I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. They said, Each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given to you and your ancestors, but you have not paid attention or listened to me. So Ezekiel said it, and then Jeremiah said that I sent all my servants to you, and none of you, you, you didn't listen to any of them. And then if we look ahead in chapter 4 of Matthew, even Jesus says it. Very simply, he says, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's really interesting because in the, in the Gospel of Mark, and I don't have the scripture reference for the screen, but it says that when Jesus starts his ministry, it says that Jesus went out into Judea and started to preach the gospel saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And I remember as a young guy, I would read that and be like, I thought the gospel was the story of Jesus' death and resurrection. How could he be preaching the gospel if he hadn't died yet? And if he hadn't come back from the dead, what was that about? How could he be preaching the gospel? And then you read that the gospel is good news, and it's like, well, that's terrible news. <laughs> Repent, that's, that's, that's a hard word to hear. But the thing of it is, like I said, it is the foundation of Jesus' kingdom. Because the first thing we have to do when we go to Jesus is to repent. And so for the people who are doers, maybe you pride yourself in action more than thinking or, or feeling. If you're a doer, then the action is to repent. To repent means two things. Two things. And sometimes you'll hear one of the two, so I put them together, but it means two things. A, it means to turn away from your sins and idols, which is language that you see in the Old Testament, to turn away. And then what we would add to that from the, from the New Testament is to turn to Jesus Christ for forgiveness. And so many times in our Christian walk, we can kind of emphasize one or the two. It is important to see both because f repentance isn't just merely about not doing bad things. And it's not just about being in relationship with Jesus, it is a complete acknowledgement of your sinful actions and lifestyle and character. But with that brokenness that you have in your heart for your sins, turning to the Lord who can save you and who loves you and wants to cleanse you and is faithful to do that. Like I said before, I think it was a couple months ago in a message on Psalm 51, I think it was my, one of my first ones here, we can kind of go off in one of those two directions where we uh, are so aware of our sins, but then we just leave brokenhearted because we're just crushed because we feel so guilty and so bad for what we do. Or we can go down the other road where we're like, ah, Jesus is my friend. He accepts me for who I am without 
any real acknowledgement of who we are as people. You know, like sometimes you read in the New Testament of, in, in, in the Old Testament, you read about Isaiah in heaven. He gets this vision of heaven and he sees the angels worshiping him, saying, holy, holy, holy. And what's his first reaction? What's the first thing he, uh, how does he react when he sees God's goodness? He falls on his face, right? Falls on his face. So repentance is, is absolutely key. That's how we react to the kingdom. And if we're studying King Jesus and we're studying Jesus' kingdom, then we have to understand that like if if he had like core value, like we have our core values on that banner over there, it says we value every church, every family, every company, every individual has a list of core values. And it can be different for each person. But if it said kingdom, if, it, if Jesus had his own banner and it said kingdom, the first one on the list would be repentance. We value repentance. That's what he values in his kingdom. And so I'm not going to just leave you in that. Uh, we're going to do a little quick crash course on how to repent. Uh, one of the feedback in the survey was that we're not very practical sometimes with the things we lay out. So we're going to do a quick crash course. And I tried to alliterate it as best as I could. Five Cs. If you take notes, this is the time. If you have a fill in the, in the blank, that's a good thing too. The first C is character. And so I've been saying this for a couple of weeks now through these, whenever I've been preaching, is the most important question that you can ask when you open your Bible is, what is it? Who is God? And so to live a lifestyle of repentance is to always be in a place where you are asking yourself this question every single day, every single minute of your life. Who is God? Who is he? And when you open the scriptures and you open it to, you can flip your Bible to any page, any chapter, any verse. I don't suggest reading your Bible like that. But if you were to do that, and then the first question you were to ask was, who is God? I guarantee you that there's going to be an answer anywhere because the entire Bible is about is given to us to answer that question. Who is God? And so you open your Bible and you see God is holy. God is powerful. He's loving. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's faithful. He's patient. He's kind. On and on, the list of God's characters, characteristics can go on and fill this entire earth because he's, what language do we have to describe him? There isn't enough words to describe who God is. And so to repent, we need to come at our lives from this perspective by asking the question, who is God? The second C is conviction. And so in light of his character, in light of his character, based on who, what the scriptures say about God and his character, what does that mean for me? Who am I in light of these great things that we've learned about God? And just like Isaiah, you fall on your face. You see the splendor of God's beauty. You see his power. You see his might. You see his, his kindness and his love. And the reaction, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, is to fall on your face in conviction because he is so great and we are so not. So conviction. Number three, just like Isaiah's confession. After he falls on his face, Mike, what does he say? Just the, the Cole's notes. Sorry, man, I put the pastor on the spot. He says, woe is me, right? 
Right, a man of unclean lips. Yeah. So what does he do? He confesses his sins. It's very simple. Admit your sins. One of the things that we uh, found in the survey was that people love two-way dialogue and they want the chance to be able to ask questions. So I know this will come unnatural to you because you probably don't do this in church, but if you have a question, just ask. Is anybody, everybody following with these three? Character, conviction, confession. The fourth C is cleansing. So once we see God's character and we're convicted of our sins and we admit our sins, then a lot of us leave there, right? A lot of us are like, cool, I'm terrible, and we walk away. The fourth one is to seek that cleansing and to trust in Jesus' faithfulness. It takes faith to, to trust that I'm confessing my sins. I've been open with God about my sins, the, th the things that he already knows about, frankly. And... Now I have to trust in the fact that I am forgiven. That when God looks at me, he sees his son Jesus. That I can walk in confidence because I know God has taken my sins away. It takes, um, it takes faith to do that. But your faith, it could just take just the size of a mustard seed. All you need is a little. And it's based on Jesus' Jesus's faithfulness to cleanse you. So... That's the fourth C. And the fifth one, mine says cultivate your character. So that's like double word score. Open your Bible, pray and seek accountability so that you can grow in your love of God and hatred of sin. We need to cultivate our lives. A lot of us, if I were to anonymously poll you and say, how do you grow in Christ? You might have a hard time answering because... Frankly, when I the most the majority of Christians I meet, I'll ask them, "Are you growing?" Uh, maybe. Well, how do you grow? Well, I don't really. And then the conversation falls flat because they're not taught how to grow. How to grow is like the most practical question. We all we all want to grow, right? We all want to grow. The fact of the matter is, a lot of times we don't even make it through half this list. But number five is really important to us because we can't just confess and trust Jesus' as cleansing and then go back to the same habits and go back to the same lifestyle that we've put into place. We need to change things. We need to put ourselves in a place where we're going to cultivate that growth. If you see weeds growing up in your garden, you can't just walk away. You have to pull them out. You have to change the landscape. You have to do whatever it takes to make sure that new weeds aren't coming into places. So the way we do that at Fellowship Oshawa is by opening our Bibles. We do that by praying with, for one another. We do that by seeking accountability, which we do through our discipleship. I think almost everyone here is in a discipleship relationship, which is a beautiful time in the life of our church. And when we plug into those things, we are then put on a path where we can cultivate our lives. And we can start to grow in our love of God and our hatred of sin. And so we need to put these five C's. Is this, is this clear enough for everyone? Is this practical enough for you guys? So take that. That's how we live out the kingdom value of repentance in God's kingdom. And in Jesus' kingdom, this is the lifestyle we need to be living. This is, this is what our lives should look like. And so I encourage you, if you need help, reach out. If you have questions about how to do that further, come talk to us.
And uh, if you're visiting, you can go back to your pastors if you go to a church. If you don't, well, we'd be happy to help you find somewhere to plug in so that you can get answers to these questions about how to do these things on a regular basis because we want to see you grow. We want to see you growing into Jesus, okay? So the first value is repentance. Does anybody have any questions? Comments? Am I doing okay? I'm like sweating like a, like a fire hydrant. The second one is um, anticipation. So what does that word mean when you see that? What comes to mind when you hear, when you hear the word anticipation or anticipate? Just shout it out. Waiting eagerly. Excitement. What else? Yeah, Chris. <laughs> what else? It could be dread. And what? And what's the dread? What? Like we put all these things together. What's like? What is this based on? Okay. Yeah. Something's coming. John had this this ministry where he he was on a mission to prepare the people to make a people prepared for the Lord's coming. And he had this message that was very simple. Said, he said to repent. But oftentimes we skip over that and we say, okay, repent, cool. But what's the second half of the verse? Let's go to it. What does it say? Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does that mean? What does at hand mean? Well, nobody says that anymore. It's close. We've got to bring this back to our common day language. The pizza is at hand. It's coming. <laughs> it's cool because, like, the prophets throughout the entire Old Testament, they, they, they were saying this. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I remember so much from my childhood, my dad would say, Jesus is coming back. And I'd sit there as a kid and be like, When? And for so long, like, can, can you imagine if we're impatient, imagine what the, like, the prophets, the, the, the kids of the people who lived in the time of Jeremiah and Isaiah, like, the kingdom is coming, the king is coming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and they're like, ah. And then, you know, the prophets get old, and they die, and then a new one comes, and he says the same thing, and then he dies, and back and forth, and they're just waiting and waiting and waiting, and they didn't know. They didn't know when he was coming. They said soon, but what did soon really mean for them? John had this awesome privilege of when he said the kingdom of heaven is at hand, it was actually at hand because in the next verses, Jesus literally walked up to him. And so that's, that's cool. I, I thought that it was interesting that he had that privilege of not having to wait. The question I have for you, and this is a hypothetical situation, is if you knew with 100% certainty that you were having guests over for supper, so you have guests coming, but you had no idea when they were going to come, what would you do? What would you do? What's that? You'd prepare? Yeah. Some people would prepare. I think some of you who are, who are more rebellious, who maybe don't want to say this out loud, would say, it really depends on who's coming. <laughs> right? I don't even actually think that's the worst question you could ask. I think it's actually a very valid question. And so I started to ask myself, who's coming? Who's coming over? Who's coming? Verse 3, what does it say? It says, oh, let's go back. It says, Prepare the way of the Lord. 
the Lord. The Lord is the one coming. And it's cool because I started to read through this and I always used to ask myself, have you guys noticed, for anybody who grew up in the church, why sometimes Lord is written in lowercase and sometimes it's written in uppercase? Have you guys asked that question? Let's go to Isaiah. It said, it said there that in verse 3 that it was, for this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. So I went to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and it says, In the wilderness, the voice of the one calling in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. And so I read that, and I was like, look, it's in uppercase. What does that mean? This is pretty nerdy, so just keep following with me here, but I promise it's good. Whenever we saw, do, does anyone know the answer to that? Why is it in uppercase? Shout it out. It's his name. So let's go to the next slide. Next one. This is the Hebrew. Whenever the word Lord is written in uppercase, this is what it would have been written in Hebrew. And this is what we call in the church the tetragrammaton. <laughs> Big word. It's literally a fancy word of saying four letters, but the most powerful four letters, four-letter combination in the history of, of time. Because whenever it was written like this in the Old Testament, it was a reference to, I guess, the proper name of God, like God's government name. He had a lot of nicknames. He had a lot of, there were a lot of ways that they used to describe him. But whenever this was written, this was his proper name. This was his actual pronoun that he went by. And so follow with me here. One of my favorite things in the, in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, is how the authors are reclaiming these words that are traditionally used in the Old Testament. And so when you go to John chapter 1, there's this beautiful language that says that he is the light of the world, or he is eternal. Or you go to Colossians and it says that he is the image of the invisible God. And they're using these words that are traditionally Old Testament words, and now they're applying them to Jesus. They're applying them to Jesus because it has... There's this like amazing thing. John is referring to Jesus using that word because in his mind, beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus Christ is God. He is God. This is the proper name of God. And if you're quoting this and saying the Lord is coming, that means that God is coming. Not just a prophet. Not just this guy. Not just a good teacher. What are all the ways that you've heard the world describe Jesus? Maybe as a good teacher solid guy, did good miracles. We got to put that away because that's not, that's not enough to make us anticipate his coming. Who's the one coming? It's the Lord. It's the Lord. He's coming. And so when I ask you that question, if you knew with 100% certainty that's, that you were having guests over for supper and you ask me who's coming, the answer is God is coming. Yahweh is coming into the world. And so if you knew that Jesus was coming to your house for dinner, what would you do? You didn't know he was coming. What would you do? I'd tell my wife. And what would she do? <laughs> That's your job, right? There's this cool, like, anticipation is, is crazy because I'm saying this, and it's very easy to to hear this and it just kind of rolls off our backs. But like, I want you to listen very clear, clearly to me. 
Listen, like, super, like, pay attention right now. Jesus Christ is coming back. He is coming back. When John said it, he probably could see him coming down from the road. Like, he's coming. The kingdom of God is at hand. But for us, we can't see him, because he, but he's already come. We are waiting for his second coming, but that's his last time. That's the last time he's coming back. When he comes back the last time, that's it. There is nothing, there's no more waiting after that. And so hear me, don't walk out of church today and like just allow it to just kind of roll off your back and it, it's just another thing you heard on a Sunday morning. Jesus Christ is coming back. He is coming back and when he comes back, it, everything is going to change. I hope that that, I, I had like this massive passage from Second Peter chapter 3 that I was going to read through and I was just like, you know what? I don't, I don't have to go into more scripture. We don't have to read more to see this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus Christ is coming back. And we need to really put this in front of our minds every day because this is the thing that gets us going. The funny thing is, is like our, our generation, we struggle so much with apathy because we're so comfortable. There was no anticipation for anything. When's the last time you've been excited for anything, like truly excited? As a kid, you remember what it was like to be excited about something and how that excitement would just shape and reorient every single thing that you did in your life? We need that same excitement and that same anticipation for Jesus' return. And when he comes back, it's going to be awesome. Awesome. And so that's the second thing we need to value in the kingdom. We need to value repentance and we need to value anticipation. And the way we show our urgency is by the third point, which is bearing fruit. Bearing fruit. And so the message that I have for you is those who are saved into the kingdom of Jesus, you're not just merely saved to escape hell. That's not what this life is about. We're not here to just, your salvation is not a get out of hell free card. Like, I don't go to hell, that's my life. That's not what this life is about when we put our faith in Jesus. We are saved to bear fruit. So let's look at the verses. Verse 7, it says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Do you guys know what a viper is? A snake. Do you guys know what a brood is? A bunch of snakes, like a, a whole crew, family, team of snakes. And you guys, who's, who's the original snake, the OG snake? The first snake. So when, he, when we read this, we're like brood of vipers. I've never seen a viper. I don't know what the heck a brood is. And it just kind of goes over our head. But when they heard it, Imagine you're just like, we're going to go see who this John is. And then John turns from his baptism. He's about to dunk a guy. And he goes, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Imagine how shocked you would be as a Pharisee who was the, he was the tops. He would have been the most powerful guy in his society, apart from the Romans. He had the power. He had the money. He had the accolades. When they arrived somewhere, people would clean up. People would say, oh, the Pharisees are coming. Get ready. We need to get our house in order and make our house nice. And probably people would go up to them and, and, and suck up and try to show them favoritism because they wanted the Pharisee to show them some extra love or whatever. 
And so you're used to this lifestyle. You've been told your whole life, you're a child of Abraham. You're from the tribe of Benjamin. You, you know, you're a Pharisee. You are the tops. Here's this awesome pay, free house. Everybody loves you. You're born a celebrity. Basically like a Kardashian, right? Like you have everything you want in this world. And you roll up to this baptism, and then he gets called a viper. Not just a snake, but what he was saying is that you are like your father, the devil, who was a liar from the beginning, a murderer from the beginning. That's what Jesus said to them when he called them a brood of vipers. He goes on to say, you are like your father, the devil. <laughs> so to go from the top of society to you are a child of Satan, that's a very, very steep way to fall down, right? And so here's the thing. It's not, it's very, it's very easy to get to this point and be like, the Pharisees are the worst, whatever. But the question and the thing that we have, to, we have to wrestle with is, what fruit are we bearing? The question isn't, the thing is, is like we sometimes see like, okay, that guy bears fruit and this guy doesn't. But the reality that we need to plug ourselves into is that every single one of us in this room bear fruit. We are all bearing fruit in some way, shape, or form. We are all, the fruit are the byproducts of our lives. So if you're a living, breathing person here, you can raise your hand if you're, if you're alive. That means you're bearing fruit. The question isn't, am I bearing fruit? The question is, what type of fruit are you bearing? See, for the Pharisees, when you look throughout the Old Testament, these guys, they got it the worst. It wasn't just John calling them a brood of vipers. It wasn't just Jesus. Forever, in the history of prophets, Israel's leaders have been getting blown up, which is why they always rejected them. The prophets would come and be like, you need to repent. You're a brood of vipers. They're like, this is, this is not God. And then they ship him away and make him look like an idiot. And then they go on and, you know, 50 years comes by and then Jeremiah comes and he's like, repent. You're a brood of vipers. You need to repent. And then they're like, no, 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 no. That can't be God. And then Malachi comes and they're like, he's like, repent. And no, that can't be God. Year after year, a new guy comes, says repent, they reject him. God is so, was so critical of Israel's leaders because those leaders were called to lead by example. They were called to lead their nation. They were called, if you look into Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, where God is laying out the role of leadership for Israel, these were the people who were supposed to be leading by example. Not, you know, suppressing the people, oppressing the people and making them pay extra taxes and, and pushing them down so that no matter what they did in their life, they made them feel guilty. That, that was not the role of the leader. The, leader. the role of the leader was to lift these people up. And so whenever I see leadership, I always remember, you can pull up that picture, the next one. I remember this scene from, that's terrible. That did not turn out. Do you, do you, for those who can see it, what, what are you looking at? Two guys. Two football players from the movie Remember the Titans. It's just, it did not translate well on the screen, I'm sorry. <laughs> but on the left we have Julius, and on the right we have Gary Bertier. And in the movie, Gary is getting mad at Julius for not blocking. And Julius gets really upset at him, and uh, this is the, short, the super short version of the story if you haven't seen the movie. He says, attitude reflects leadership, Captain. 
and shuts him up. Like he says nothing, they cut the scene and they go somewhere else. Attitude reflects leadership. He's the captain. He's getting mad at Julius for not following the rules, but he himself was not doing what he was supposed to do. He was the leader. And so what John was saying to these people was, you brood of vipers, attitude reflects leadership, captain. If your people are not following God, don't look at them. Look at yourself. As leaders, you had a responsibility and you dropped the ball super hard. And the worst part of it is they were so religious and so caught up in their Jewish heritage that they thought that they were actually good. They thought that they were God's chosen people. And that's why he says, even without them answering, he says, what does he say here? I'm looking for it. Verse 9. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham our father. For I tell you, God is able to, from these stones, raise up children for Abraham. Even without them saying anything, he reads their mind and says, I know what you're going to say. Listen, I already know. I've heard this a million times. I already know what you're going to say. You're going to start talking about Abraham. Well, let me just get ahead of you. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. It's not about your heritage. It's not about your genetics. It's not about something that you did in the past or something your forefathers did. For, for the modern-day Christians, it's not about maybe you put your faith in Jesus when you were a kid. It's not about the fact that you were raised in a Christian household. It's about now. It's about today. And so these guys, they, they, they were relying on their past to get saved, and John completely smashes them. And then he goes on into verses 10 and 12, and he turns it up even a couple more levels. Let's look at it. It says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Jesus, Lou. And then we'll come down to here. It says, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Two huge warnings that I think we need to, as we close the message, that we need to pay attention to. You know, as I, as I read through this, I, I, three types of people came into my mind. I fall into the second category, but there's three people here. I want to take this, uh, those two warnings. The, the part in there about baptism with fire and water, that, that'll, I'll leave that to Mike for next week. We can't talk about everything. We're just going to talk about those two warnings. I thought about three people. The first one is the apathetic person. The second one is the frustrated Christian. And the third one are people who don't know Jesus. So I'm going to talk to each one of you separately, and then we'll finish off the message. So the first one is for the apathetic Christian. Maybe somebody who, you know, maybe you came to Christ at a young stage of your life. Maybe you, uh, you were raised in a Christian household, and that was, that's important for you, and that's still important for, in my opinion, to, to have those things in your life. I'm not saying that those are bad things, but just like the Pharisees, they had this thing where they just relied on these things from the past, and they were like, I'm good. I don't need to do anything now. I just to stay in my lane as a Pharisee, and I'm good forever. The thing of it is, is they thought they were good, but they were super far from God. And so the question I have for you is, is this you? Is this you? Think about it. Do you guys know what a winnowing fork is? Pull up that picture. You guys know what that winnowing fork is? I'll let you tell it. Yeah. 
Right. And so what it seems like what Jesus is saying is that he would, Jesus is the farmer. He has the winning fork. He's picking up the, would you say the, the, the sheaths, the grain? And he would shake it. And those who were part of him, who were of his kingdom, would, would fall to the bottom. And he would gather those up and harvest them. And whatever didn't, which was lighter, the chaff, the wind would take it and blow it right into the furnace and burn up. And so this illustration has to do with separation. And God is saying to us today, if you can't tell the difference between who belongs to God and who, and who doesn't belong to God, I'll do it for you. That's what God is saying. I will show you the difference. And my, the guy who discipled me, his name is Michael Thompson. He used to ask me this question every single time I met up with him for discipleship. He'd say, what is the difference between you and a non-Christian? He'd say, Jermaine, if I took your life and compared it to somebody who... They, to an atheist, we'll say. Somebody who has, who says that they don't follow Jesus, they have, they, there's no pretension about it, they, they don't follow Jesus. If I took your life, and I wrote down all your thoughts and your actions and your deeds and everything, and I took their life, and I took an inventory of it, and I did the same, and then I were to compare the two side by side, would I see a difference in your lives? Would I be able to say, this is the guy who knows God, and this is the guy who doesn't? And I'd sit there, I was like 22, and I'd sit there like just not knowing what to say. I'd just sit there quietly, and he'd get super mad at me and be like, you have to answer me. Tell me what you think would happen. And I would, under my breath, say there'd be no difference. And he'd be like, he'd get really like, he'd like flex his muscles and be like, you have, you have to wrestle with this man. Like basically a slap in the head, like wake up. And we'd meet up every Thursday. <laughs> And every Thursday, he'd at, we'd go through the study, and then he'd ask me the same question. He'd say, what's the difference between you and your non-Christian friends? What's the difference? Because these things you're telling me that you're struggling with, the things that you're involved in, they look no different than anyone else who's your age. And so the winnowing fork has to do with separation. He's saying, my people, I'm going to put over here, and those who are not, I'm going to put over here. Like I said before, it doesn't, matter if you grew up in a Christian home. It doesn't matter if you made a decision to follow Jesus as a child. What matters is what you do today. What matters is this intentional decision of following Jesus. And the call to action that I have for you is exactly what we started the sermon with, is repent. Repent. Stop going off of what happened in the past. You have to repent today and actively participate in Jesus' kingdom if you're going to take the name of Jesus. You're going to call yourself a Christian. I used to have this friend, and he, he would call himself a Christian, but there would be nothing else in his life that looked Christ-like. And I, I went to him when, when we had coffee, and he just was like, he was like club binging, and he was doing drugs, and he was doing all this stuff. And I said, you need to just like, Stop calling yourself a Christian. You're really making us look bad, man. And you're making yourself look bad, and you're making Jesus look bad. I would rather you call yourself an atheist at this point than to continue with the charade of just calling yourself a Christian. Get on or get off. There is no middle. I, and, and this was shocking to him when I said, I would rather you deny Jesus to my face right now and start over than you continuing with this act that you're Christian just because you're using the word Christian. It is not enough to call yourself a Christian. We have to bear fruit. That's the mark of a Christian.
So that's my call to action for you. Start with repentance. Start over from scratch. Forget the title. You know, no matter what you call yourself, start to seek, start to look, start to investigate. If this is something that means something to you, if you recognize it as true, then follow Jesus afresh and do it intentionally. Don't just exist off of the title. So that's for the apathetic person who maybe calls himself a Christian and isn't. The second one is for the frustrated Christians, and this is my category. This is where I fall. And it's funny because like for the for the frustrated Christian, our frustration is I want to bear fruit and I can't. Or I am, but they're tiny blueberries. I need I want to see like solid fruit. Who's in that boat? Who's in that boat? We have this frustration. We're like, come on man, like I just and you take one step forward and you take two steps back and you're encouraged in the morning and you're discouraged by the evening and you get over a certain struggle once and then two weeks later you're back in it and, and you're reading your Bible consistently for a week and then two weeks you're not and it's just up and down and it's the roller coaster and we're just frustrated because we know that there's so much more but we can't do it. I want to show you John chapter 15 verse 5 and this is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. It says, and this is on the fill in the blank. It says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit from apart. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What does it mean to abide? Is there another word that comes to mind when you think of the word abide? Live. Live, live in him. The word that comes to my mind is abode. What is an abode? So. A home. It's an old school word for, for home. To live in him. To find your house in Jesus is another way to say it. Listen, I, I, I really understand the, the struggle. We want to bear fruit. And it's funny because what we'll start to move away from these things. Like we'll see repentance and anticipation and we'll start to get bored of it. And you're like, I need to start studying deep theology and I need to move on to these large theological boulders. I need to be studying like amillennialism and I need to figure out when Jesus is coming back and I need to figure out if the gifts have seized and I need to figure out, I need to learn about like seven star Calvinism and figure out if double predestination and all these other things about, and we start to go deeper and I want to know if the world is young or old and we all good things to study but I can tell you one thing those are not the things that help us to abide in Jesus abiding in Jesus means it's your house it's your home it's and you know how precious like Canadians understand how precious home is home is like the most precious thing to us it's where we go for safety for shelter and anyone here who has, who, who has a hard time at home or maybe has been homeless, you understand that when home is not a place of peace, when your home is at risk, your whole life is in disarray. When you're home, when, when, there's, when there's conflict in your home, what else is there? Where, where can you go if not your house? Where else can you go if not for your house? Your house is Jesus. It is in Christ where you will find that peace and that rest. And so as much as you want to dig into that deep theology, as much as you want to try to start doing what in, my, in your mind might be advanced things, we have to never forget the simplicity of our lives, which is to abide in Christ. The sweet opportunity to sit at his feet, to read from his word, to pray, to fellowship over coffee with people who we love, 
We want to move on from those things because they get boring maybe. But those are the things, that home-cooked meal, a sleeping, everybody who's over 30 knows this, you're sleeping in your own bed, right? There's nothing sweeter than that. It's just simple. Sitting on your couch and having a snack. What's better than that? The young people are like, yeah. There's more. There isn't more. That's it. Your house. It's great. And for us, it, like I said, it, it means to abide. It means to, to root yourself and to get back to the, those deep nutrients that Jesus provides through reading his word, through prayer, through fellowship. We need to go back to the basics. So abide in Jesus. And the third one, to close the message, is taking the warnings of Jesus, that picture of the axe, and the picture of the winnowing fork. And if you don't know Jesus, this is a, a really important thing for you to, to look at. Can you pull up verses 10 to 12? I don't think it's in order, but... The question I have for you, and, and it is an important question if you don't follow Jesus, is to say, what fruit am I bearing in my life? Just look at your life. I want you to use this sermon as a catalyst for looking at your life. Look at how you live. Look, and, and actually for everyone, what fruit are we bearing? Look at your life. Look at your habits. Look at your money. Look at your time. And ask yourself that question, what fruit am I bearing? For someone who has not put their faith in Jesus... This is going to sound very blunt, but I'll say it like this. You have zero hope of bearing any good fruit. And that's because of the sin nature that we have in us. There is something in us called sin that wants to pull us away from God, that wants us to live our own way. And because of that sin, we are so separated from God in this life. But not just in this life, but after I saw on, on Facebook tomorrow, and uh, sorry, this morning, and this guy was like, how come nobody preaches about hell anymore? Well, I was like, oh, well, I, here we go. What does it say? The chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. It says that the, good the tree will be thrown into the fire. This is not figurative fire. This is not a metaphor for something else. This is literal fire. A literal lake of fire is what the scripture describes it. It is a place where we will be separated for God, from God forever. It is a place of torment. It is a place of pain. If you think this life, oh, I heard a quote once that said, if this is your best life now, if you're living your best life now, then you're definitely going to hell. Because what's coming is infinitely worse than this lifetime has to offer. I don't want to sugarcoat it. Because hell is real. And when we don't put our faith in Jesus and when we don't follow him, this is the promise. These are, this is not an allegory. This is, he's using imagery to show and teach us about a real thing. There is real fire. But that's not it because, that's not only it because the reason why we gather as a church, the reason why we gather as Fellowship Osh together every Sunday is not only because of the fire, but it's because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. When he died for us, who, who celebrates that today? We celebrate that today. He gave up his life on our behalf for the forgiveness of our sins. And then after that, he rose from the dead, showing that death was not the final answer. And so if you're, if you're maybe on a journey and you're trying to figure out if this is it, whether you follow Jesus or not, you will die at the end of this lifetime physically. I want, to, I want you to put up this last verse, though. 
And it's funny, we saw this at the end of the, the movie we saw on Friday. And I just thought it was so, this is it. It says, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who, who believes in me will live even after dying. And so if you put your faith in Jesus Christ today, you will still die physically. And you may still yet have a hard life. But even if, even after we die, we will live. We will have life in Christ. And so I hope that those three, repentance, anticipation, and bearing fruit, will help us to, to dig, into, dig in deeper into the kingdom. We're going to keep unfolding what the kingdom looks like through the rest of the series on Matthew. But uh, I'm going to pray and uh, we'll close off the sermon today. Holy Spirit, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would invade our hearts. I pray that you would convict our hearts and see our need for repentance. That we wouldn't just go through life thinking that everything is okay. Or blaming our outside circumstances. Things that are happening to us. But rather that we would be faced with this truth that there's something wrong in us. I pray that that would drive us to repentance. I pray that that would drive us to hope, God, that when we, we trust in you and we confess our sins to you, that you would show us again and again that you have forgiven us if we put our faith in you. I pray that as we have that hope, that anticipation would build up in our hearts, God, that we would be excited and driven and zealous for your return, God, that we would remember day after day that life is so short, You've given us, some of us, short lives to live. You've given us, some of us, long lives to live. But at the end of the day, whether it's at the end of this prayer, or in 50 years, or in 500 years, you will come back. Lord God, drive that into our hearts, the fact that you will be returning one day. Give us anticipation in our hearts as we wait for you. And lastly, God, I pray that you would, by your spirit, help us to bear fruit. Help us to bear fruit of repentance. Help us to bear fruit of obedience. Help us to pursue you with all that we have, God. And I pray that your spirit would help us in our weakness as so many of us are so hungry to pursue you, yet don't know how, God. Encourage us, lift us up, give us passion, give us zeal. And I pray that we would bear much fruit for your glory. In your name we pray, amen.